Welcome to Podcastica Patristica, an irreverent discussion on our most revered traditions. In today's episode, we are discussing the Didache, and you won't believe what happens next. Again, welcome to Podcastica Patristica, and thank you for choosing us to be your source for early Christian propaganda. We promise that you won't live to regret this. We're your hosts. I'm Gerhard Steuben. And I'm Tyler Stanley. We're both students at Baylor's Truett Seminary and think knowing about early Christianity is worth your time. On this episode, we'll be talking about the Didache, one of the earliest and therefore most important texts from early Christianity. Now, Tyler will get more into the date later, but for now it's enough to say that the Didache is so early that it claims to have been written by the apostles themselves. The word Didache is Greek for teaching and the text's whole title is The Teaching of the Lord to the Nations Through the Twelve Apostles. Now, clearly the text wasn't actually written by the apostles, but this little document was believed by many of the earliest Christians to be a distillation of the gospel for Gentiles, you know, since they didn't have the luxury of their knowing their Old Testaments as well. And since this text is so early and claims to be foundational to early Christianity, we thought it'd be a good place to start the podcast. Before we get into the text, though, let's pour a drink. What are we having today, Tyler? Well, a perfect drink pairing for the Didache is Jefferson's Reserve Bourbon, named after our third president. Much like Jefferson's Bible, the Didache is a distilled version of Jesus' moral teachings. Here to tell us a bit about Thomas Jefferson is our friend Jake Robbie, a scholar of U.S. religious history. Jake is an accomplished writer, most known for a Facebook comment on a CNN post, which garnered over 900 likes. Jake, thanks for coming in. Why don't you take the next 30 minutes or so and tell us a bit about President Jefferson and tell us some about his faith. Well, hey, thank you guys so much for having me on. I'm really glad to be able to come on and dispel a few misconceptions about President Jefferson and his religious views. So I've actually gone over all of Jefferson's letters and speeches, and I've looked at what he put together in the so-called Jefferson Bible. And I've come to the conclusion that Jefferson actually believed that God actively manages the world, so he wasn't actually a deist, but more a theist who rejected special revelation, something like the theological liberals of the 19th century. In fact, Jefferson actually put the Jefferson Bible together as a sort of personal devotional aid, and not as a distillation of biblical truth. So in that sense, it's not actually like the Didache. All right, thanks a lot for coming out, Jake. That was great stuff. Hang on, hang on, that was about 30 seconds. You told me that I had 30 minutes to talk. I never said that. You did. I took a plane to get here, and you were giving me 30 seconds to deconstruct the last 100 years of Jefferson scholarship. And you did such a good job. Thanks again for coming. Yeah, thanks, Jake. That was really informative. We'll have to have you on again sometime. So, just like the deist Jefferson stripped Christianity of its narrative framework and replaced it with a simple set of morals... Jefferson wasn't a deist. So the Didache foregoes most of the narrative elements of Christianity and gives a rough-and-tumble set of basics for Christian living and church order. Generally, scholars place the date of the Didache sometime in the late first century, which means that it was definitely written before some of our New Testament books. Although there is a significant group who think that it was written in the mid-2nd century as a response to the Montanist heresy. And it makes sense purely based on the fact that Montanism was a movement of people claiming to be prophets, and the Didache teaches you how to spot a false prophet. But it seems as if more scholars lean towards the earlier date. Uh, Some think it was written as early as 70 CE, 
Um, one scholar says that the archaic simplicity of the Didache's theology and ecclesiology and its lack of attention to the persecution or heresy that was going on in that time indicates a very early date. Those aren't exactly foolproof reasons to establish its date, so to be safe, let's just say that it was written sometime in the late first century, but also maybe it wasn't. Now the provenance, which is just the fancy term for the location of writing, is even more difficult to pin down than the date. The Didache definitely has strong ties to Judaism, and it had a wide circulation in Egypt early on. And we know that there was a decent-sized Jewish population in Egypt, so that's a strong possibility. And many think it was written in Syria or Palestine, but ultimately we have no idea. What's important is that the text is found in a very wide range of places, which means that lots of churches believed it was important and useful, and perhaps even authoritative. Now that so many churches believed that it was not only important and useful, but some probably thought the Didache was authoritative is a really interesting and important fact. Thinking about the way they took it to be authoritative will be worthwhile not just because it strikes us as weird, but because our own ideas about the nature of authority in Christian life and thought might be challenged through their understanding. Let's begin by setting up some basic facts and definitions. First, let's define authority. In Christian theology, to say something is authoritative is to say that the thing has the authority to tell you what you should and shouldn't do and believe. It doesn't describe what people do or think, but instead prescribes what they should do and think. The most common idea in Christianity is that the Bible is in some sense authoritative. That is, the Bible has the right to challenge us on our beliefs and actions, and we are morally bound to submit to what the Bible says. You may have words floating around, heard words floating around like inerrancy or infallibility or inspiration, and these arguments are all attempts to understand exactly how the Bible is authoritative. As it turns out, we're going to sidestep a lot of those conversations because the early church, who we think was correct, approached the question from a different direction than most theologians do today. Second, who has authority? Something that all Christians, all theists in fact, will agree on is that God is the ultimate authority on whatever matter God chooses to speak. If there is a God, a single God, since polytheism makes the matter a bit more complex, then what God says goes. If God says it's immoral to steal, then it's immoral to steal. If God says the earth is flat, then disbelieving God is going to piss God off. That's how ethics in a monotheistic system works. And, like I said, all monotheistic systems believe that God has the ultimate authority. We agree. There is a source of absolute moral, theological, and even philosophical authority in the universe, and that authority is God. Third, got to define revelation. Now, the fact that God has ultimate authority doesn't mean much for us if God never speaks. It doesn't matter much if a mother has authority over her son if she never tells him to do anything. It doesn't matter if President Obama has authority over the army if he never issues them any commands. And, in the same way, it doesn't matter much to us that God has authority unless God says something. In Christian theology, we call that revelation. The idea is that God reveals God's will to humanity through whatever means. So, being precise, God is the one with authority, and God's communication, God's word, whatever form that might take, is called revelation. So let's start at the Didache's title. As I mentioned before, the Didache's full title is The Teaching of the Lord to the Gentiles Through the Twelve Apostles, or, in Greek, Didache Kariu Diaton 
Dodica Apostolon Tois Ethnison. Now that title wasn't original to the text, but it was known by this name, or very similar ones, early on. Really early on. We're talking 300 or so, and we're late ballparking it to be safe. Now, as I said, the belief that God possesses authority is common to all monotheistic systems, and Christianity is no different. The question is, how do we access God? How do we know what God thinks? In Christian theology, we are insistent that Jesus is God's communication to the world. That's what the Gospel of John means when it calls Jesus God's word. Though God is the possessor of authority in the Christian faith, Jesus is the way God communicates God's commands to, and truths to humans. Now you'll notice that the Didache's title reflects this nuanced system. It reads, the teaching of the Lord, that is Jesus. Jesus is and was himself God's word, God's communication with the world, and thus Jesus' own teaching is God's teaching. Jesus' commands are God's own commands. But Jesus isn't around here anymore. Sure, Jesus' spirit, the Holy Spirit, is still here, moving the world, guiding the world, being the breath in every living being's lungs, but a tangible Jesus isn't. You can't fly over to Palestine and ask Jesus what his will is anymore, though it's fairly certain that mass atrocities committed against modern-day Palestinians wouldn't be Jesus' will. So, how do we know what Jesus, and therefore God's, will is? Easy. The title reads, The Teaching of the Lord Through the Apostles. The Gospels record that before Jesus died, he appointed twelve men, and then some other women and men after his resurrection, to go around and spread the message he had for the world. Notable among those women and men are Paul, author of quite a bit of the New Testament, and Jesus' own brother James, who also has a letter in the New Testament. To these people, Jesus gave a delegated authority to extend the message, the Gospel, about God's will and God's action for the world. These people as the Didache's title reads, are called the Apostles. Incidentally, this is what the New Testament teaches too, and why we think it's true. The New Testament's conception of authority and revelation is not based on texts, but on persons. Paul thought that he himself had the delegated authority from Jesus to command the church at Corinth not to have weird, semi-incestuous sex. Paul thought that he himself had the delegated authority to tell the Galatian church what the true gospel is, and to reject any false distortions of it. It didn't particularly matter to Paul whether he told you not to lie in a letter or in person. What mattered to Paul, and the other apostles, is that you obeyed them. Paul himself says this clearly in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, in which he tells the Thessalonian church to persistently cling to his teaching, whether he taught it to them personally or through letters. The medium is unimportant but the message is everything. Why does this matter? Well, the Didache brought it up, so we had to explain it. But more importantly, this subtle shift in understanding has huge implications for Christian theology. First of all, it makes the distinction between the New Testament and early Christianity a bit more blurry. The Didache itself claims to be the apostles' teaching, and how can we know that it's not? They didn't write it, sure, so we can't be certain that this or that passage in the Didache would have been approved by Peter or James but it's relatively likely that the early church's teaching was representative of the apostles' teaching. The earliest churches were personally taught by the disciples for years and years. If you had a question about what the apostles taught, why wouldn't you go ask the earliest churches? Acts 20, 29-32 is a case in point. Paul is warning the Ephesian elders that some people he called wolves would soon come and try to undermine the gospel with new, wrong teaching. What does Paul recommend to the elders to do against this threat? Quote, 
Therefore, keep alert, knowing that for three years I did not cease admonishing each one of you with tears." Unquote. He essentially says, don't give in to new wrong teaching. Remember everything I've taught you about these past three years. Three years! I've only known Tyler for about two years, and I think I know Tyler pretty decently well. I know what he likes and dislikes, I know what he thinks about God and sin and morals, I know who he's voting for and which candidate he hates. And that's only two years between friends. Paul intensely discipled the Ephesian church for three years. According to Acts 18, Paul also taught the, Corinth, or the church at Corinth personally for a year and a half. Why does all that matter? Well, let's say that some ancient document was floating around in the ancient world, let's call it the Gospel of Thomas and it fell into the hands of the churches at Ephesus and Corinth. Now they knew the apostles. They knew the apostles well. And they knew what the apostles would have thought about the Gospel of Thomas. Based on their deep acquaintance with the apostles and the apostles' gospel, the early churches judged documents and teachers that claimed to represent Christianity. And they judged some of them, like Thomas, to fall short of the authentically apostolic gospel. And let's say some other ancient document was floating around, let's call it the Didache, and it fell into the hands of the churches at Ephesus and Corinth. They might have gotten it and said, yeah, this sounds about right. That sounds basically like what Paul and Peter said. So they started making copies of it, sending it around to other churches and preaching sermons based on it. That's how it worked in the earliest days, up into the year 150 or 200 or so. So when we read the text, the earliest churches thought were good enough to keep of which the Didache is arguably the earliest, we're reading what the disciples of Paul and Peter thought sounded enough like Paul and Peter to bear their names and authority. That doesn't guarantee that what the texts say is true and would have represented the gospel of Paul and Peter and James, but it sure as hell gives it the benefit of the doubt. So, not only is this shift in thinking a good way to think about the Didache, and a good way, in our opinion, to think about the nature of authority in Christian theology, it's also one of the big reasons why we care enough to make this podcast. If what we're saying is true, then Christians everywhere need to know, read, and love the earliest church fathers, and we hope this podcast contributes at least a little to that goal. So what is the Didache, and how was it used? Churches would have used this as a sort of training program for new Christians, particularly those that had come from a Greek and Roman religion, as opposed to Judaism. It has a very simplistic introduction to what it calls the way of life and the way of death, which is mainly just a list of things that Christians don't do. But it goes on to describe how to baptize, how to pray and fast, and how often to do so. So it seems like it had a sort of dual purpose. Primarily, it helped Gentiles get acquainted with the Christian moral code, and shifting from Judaism to Christianity would have been relatively smooth, but shifting from Greco-Roman polytheistic religion and their significantly different moral systems would have been a drastic change. So the Didache gives the church a training program to help Gentiles transition into Christianity. Secondarily, it gave the church some structure. Leadership in early Christian churches look nothing like what we have today. They usually met in people's homes, and each person participated in leading. And without the formal leadership structures like the ones we have de designed in today's world, and without the established set of scriptures, this kind of book would have been invaluable to help the churches throughout the ancient world to develop a singular identity and function. Think of it like the Jedi Code. And the two ways are the Jedi and the Sith. 
the Jedi and the Sith. Now, as someone who's played through about one-tenth of Knights of the Old Republic, an old Star Wars video game, I think I can explain this. In KOTOR, as it's called by enthusiasts such as myself, you have to memorize a bit of the Jedi code before you get a light stick to go around killing stupid aliens. It's called a lightsaber, and you're defending the galaxy from Darth Malak. Idiot. Well, anyway, the code is contained in five aphorisms. There is no emotion. There is peace. There is no ignorance. There is knowledge. There is no passion. There is serenity. There is no chaos. There is harmony. And there is no death. There is the Force. That code teaches you how to blow stuff up in the most upstanding, Jedi-like way possible. There is the Sith way of death. Emotion, ignorance, passion, chaos, and death. And there is the Jedi way of life. Peace, knowledge, serenity, harmony, and the Force. Knowing the two ways helps you to know what decisions to make as the game goes forward, like not trying to kill the Sand People boss, because he's hella hard. In the same way, the Didache was meant as a convenient, portable little set of Christian moral instruction to help Christians walk in the Jedi way of peace rather than the sin way of death. Now, there's a ton of do's and don'ts in the Didache's two ways section, chapters 1 through 6 if you're following along at home, but I'll just introduce a few here, and then Tyler will talk about the most important one. Now, this first one was a huge surprise to me when I first read the Didache in college. As it turns out, the very first apostolic Christian moral treatise ever condemned abortion. Yep, abortion. Weird, huh? I'd assumed that that was basically a modern issue, but apparently not. I'll read the passage to you from chapter 2, verse 2. You shall not murder a child in the womb, nor kill it after birth. It's pretty clear what the early church was writing against. The early church seemed to have thought children, both born and unborn, had inherent moral value, and therefore that murdering or killing them, the two words the Didache uses, are sinful actions. I don't think I need to explain this one anymore, since we all get what it's saying. It's also worth pointing out that the Didache condemns something called pederasty, which I highly discourage you from googling. Chapter 2, verse 2 also reads, You shall not corrupt children. Apparently, men having sex with underage boys was common enough in ancient Greco-Roman culture that the early Christians felt it was worth being explicit about, and they were right about that. In a great little article about the interpretation of Romans 1.27, James E. Miller says, quote, The differences between ancient and modern sexual practices are stark. In the Roman Empire, pederasty was accepted, and homosexuality between adults of either sex was despised. Today, pederasty is clearly the more despised practice of the two. In the Roman Empire, anal intercourse, whether pederastic or homosexual, was considered relatively normal, and oral intercourse was under great stigma, where today the situation is largely reversed." Unquote. Miller goes on to talk about how in Rome, marital fidelity was only expected from women, and that ancient Rome in ancient Rome, slaves were largely seen as the sexual property of their owners. It's clear, then, that ancient sexual standards were way, way different than our own. Inter interestingly, Socrates is pretty well known for having been a pederast. Even in one of Childish Gambino's raps, for sweatpants, if anyone cares, he says, someone, quote, F's boys like Socrates, unquote. Surprising to many first readers of Plato's Symposium, the entire thing is basically one big discussion on pederasty and sexuality. 
but mostly pederasty. One of the funniest and saddest when you think about it parts is that Socrates is highly praised because he had the self-control to lay in bed with a particularly attractive boy all night and not try to have sex with him, which pisses the boy off quite a bit. Weird, huh? Well, that's the culture the line from the Didache was written to. They didn't tend to like homosexuality much, but were cool with having sex with boys because they had feminine features. Once they grew up and got manly looking, that's when it became bad, because they're not pseudo-women anymore. So it's weird. Knowing that backstory, it makes a ton of sense that the Didache would write that. That's something to remember when reading ancient texts. The reason they've survived is because in their own times and to their own audiences, they were really good. Really, really good. Good enough to save, to copy out by hand. Now some of them are terrible, Tertullian stuff got saved after all, but for the most part they're really good. And when you know the backstory, they come alive and can be really compelling. Now, one of, if not the most important aspect of the way of life is one's attitude toward money. The way of life is about caring for the oppressed. And if you want to identify the oppressed, see who's destitute. If you want to know who is doing the oppressing, see whose pockets are full. Half of chapters 1 and 4 say that you should give your money to the poor. At least seven of the sins found in the way of death are some aspect of withholding money from the needy. And in chapter 11, the trustworthiness, the trustworthiness of prophets directly relates to their attitude towards money. It makes you wonder whether American Christianity's obsession with sexual sins is an attempt to protect ourselves con from confronting our own wealth and our oppression of the needy. The father of liberation theology, Gustavo Gutierrez, says that God has a, quote, preferential option for the poor. It's not possible to live in the way of life and not share that preferential option. The earliest Christians made it abundantly and repeatedly clear to their new members. To be a part of this movement, you will be sacrificing your wealth for the sake of those in need. Or as St. John Chrysostom put it a couple hundred years later, feed the hungry so that you won't feed the fire of hell. But where do those stupid, bleeding heart liberal early Christians get such a ridiculous idea? As it turns out, from the Bible. The Gospel of Luke is famous for its denunciation of wealth, but its message is also often neutered in contemporary exegesis. Luke pretty clearly says, like Chrysostom later said, that if you don't give your money away now, then you'll burn in hell later. The parable of the rich fool in Luke 12, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, or the story of the rich young ruler in Luke 18 all make this crystal clear. To Luke, being wealthy and keeping your money to yourself is tantamount to stealing. This is because, as Deuteronomy makes clear in chapter 8, 17, and 18, God not only owns all things, but is even the one who gives you the ability to work and earn money. If you think you earned your money, know that it is God who gave you the very capacity to earn what you've earned. Therefore, everything you own belongs to God, and God commands you to take care of the poor with that money that God owns. But being wealthy and keeping all of your money for yourself is profiting off the unjust structures of the society instead of being the solution to those injustices. Commenting on the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, Michael Parsons, a professor at our own Baylor University, says this in his commentary on Luke, quote, Luke points to the injustice of what allows for such economic inequality to exist. Yet the resources to resolve such inequities are already in the possession of Jesus's and Luke's hearers, unquote. 
All that the rich man needs to do to solve economic inequality, to rescue the poor from their condition, is to give wisely and generously exactly what the Bible commands him to do. Another early Christian writer, the anonymous author of the Gospel of the Hebrews, makes a similar point in his reinterpretation of the story of the rich young ruler. In his story, there are actually two rich young rulers. Quote, the second of the rich men said unto Jesus, Master, what good thing can I do and live? Keep the law and the prophets. I have kept them. Go, sell all that you own and distribute it to the poor, and come, follow me. But the rich man began to scratch his head, and he was upset. And the Lord said to him, How can you say, I have kept the law and the prophets? For it is written in the law, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But look, many of your brothers, sons of Abraham, are clothed in dirty rags, are dying of hunger, and your house is full of many good things, and you don't give any of it to them. And he turned and said to Simon, his disciple who was sitting by him, Simon, son of Jonah, it is easier for a camel to enter in by a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven." Unquote. Like John Chrysostom, and like Luke, the author of the Gospel to the Hebrews, it is immoral to indulge oneself in the luxuries of wealth while refusing to give your money away to those who need it more. It turns out that the Didache's continued insistence that greed, clinging to wealth rather than giving it away, is as immoral as adultery, abortion, or pederasty, is common to the early church in general, including the New Testament. Whatever those on the right side of the political and now theological side of the aisle might tell you, you simply cannot be a rich Christian who doesn't give most of your money away. Do whatever you want with your money, but if you want to follow Christ in the way of life, then you'll have to put your checkbook where your mouth is. We also have evidence in the Didache that Harry Potter would not have been welcome in any Christian assembly because magic and potions were strictly forbidden and so are pharmacists. Christians aren't allowed to use medicine either. Following typical Jewish rules, the Didache forbids magiae and pharmakiae. That's where we get our words for magic and pharmacy. This really has nothing to do with medicine at least in the sense that we use it today, but with the summoning of spirits or gods. Ancient people were animists, which means that they believed that everything had a corresponding spirit or god. The sun is the god Helios. The earth is the mother goddess Gaia. So there were corresponding spirits for the plants and animals and elements. And we have a large collection of ancient magical texts that have directions for how to make potions and how to enchant things. For instance, here's part of an invisibility spell. Take fat, or an eye of a night owl, and a ball of dung rolled by a beetle, and oil of an unripe olive, and grind them all together until smooth, and smear it on your whole body. And say to Helios, I adjure you by your great name, and then there's a bunch of untranslatable gibberish, and moisten it and say in addition, make me invisible, Lord Helios. Helios apparently can't guarantee that you won't be smelled though. So like the animists of the ancient world, Christians believed that spirits, both good and evil, which are called daimonia or demons in Greek, moved throughout the world. But when a magician called on some foreign god or spirit, Christians believe that they're actually summoning Satan's demons. And for Christians, that's problematic, for obvious reasons. 
Also, some of the magic texts tell you how to curse your enemies. Many of them were spells for protection against disembodied souls that might cause harm. Others were enchantments to get rid of headaches or other illnesses. But despite Jewish and Christian rules against magic, we still find both Jews and Christians practicing it. We even have Christian magical texts that teach you how to cast out a demon from someone using magical techniques. Um, the lines sometimes became blurry between magic, which was forbidden, and the religious ceremonies of some Christians and Jews. But the Didache made it clear that no magic or potion making was allowed. The one true God, not these spirits or daimonia, is the one we trust in our time of need. God is the one with the power, so we pray and fast to God. We trust God for our protection. There's even a dramatic scene in Acts 19 where a large number of magicians in Ephesus convert to Christianity and they burn their enchantment books in front of all the people. Speaking of weird, mystical things that we moderns don't understand anymore, nothing in ancient Christianity is more weird and foreign than the debate over eating food sacrificed to idols. Now, people who know their New Testaments pretty well will remember that the moral dilemma of eating meat sacrificed to idols was a really big deal in the ancient church. It's part of the only moral instructions the Jerusalem Council sends out to all the Gentile churches in Acts 15. Paul devotes three whole chapters to the issue in 1 Corinthians 8-10, through and it's one of the reasons that the church at Pergamum was condemned in Revelation 2, 2-17. It was a really big deal, and the Didache mentions it too. Chapter 6, verse 3 reads, Now, concerning food, bear what you are able, but be extra careful to avoid idol sacrifices, for that is the worship of dead gods. The idea of sacrificing food to idols is that you would take a goat or whatever, sacrifice it to a god or goddess, and then eat part of the sacrifice as part of a meal with the gods. In that way, the worshippers could commune with the deity in a symbolic, worshipful way. In fact, the Old Testament sacrifices were pretty much the same thing. For example, Deuteronomy 16 talks about the Passover festival, in which a family was to sacrifice an animal to Yahweh and then eat it at the temple. Deuteronomy 12.7 also talks about sacrificing at the temple and, quote, eating before the Lord your God, unquote. Just like in Hebrew religion, in ancient Greco-Roman religion, there was a communion between the God and the worshiper when an animal was sacrificed and eaten. We've already seen that the Didache makes this connection and calls meat sacrificed to idols, quote, the worship of dead gods. Paul, debatably, says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 10, where he tells the Corinthians to, quote, flee from idolatry, unquote. And the Eucharist is participation in Christ in the same way that eating idol food is to become, quote, participants with demons. So, eating idol food is, by definition, idolatry. And, because all Orthodox Christians everywhere have rejected the worship of other gods, eating idol food should also be rejected. Makes sense, right? Once again, what seems like meaningless taboo to modern readers turns out to make quite a bit of sense after you learn the backstory. So after describing the two ways, of the way of life and the way of death, the Didache shifts gears and gets into the life of the church. This is where it gives specifics on how we should baptize and how, and how often to pray and fast, how to recognize prophets and how to appoint elders. Obviously, we Baptists are correct that baptism is performed by immersion. 
although the Didache does give certain alternate methods if immersion isn't possible. Also, unlike Baptist and most other Protestants, the church was centered around the Eucharist rather than the sermon. In fact, sermons are not a prominent feature at all. In chapter 14, the Didache gives its instructions for gathering, quote, on the Lord's Day. The Greek of that phrase is really rough, though. It literally reads, but on the Lord's thing that pertains to the Lord. Weird stuff. Anyway, like Revelation 1.10, the author of the Didache calls Sunday the Lord's Day. Feel free to argue for literary dependence one way or the other, if you're into that. But more importantly, the only activity that chapter 14 gives that needs to be done at the Lord's Day gathering is the sharing of the Eucharist. Any time in the next reading that I say, give thanks, know that the Greek word is eucharize, where we get Eucharist from. Verse 1 reads, But, being gathered on the Lord's Day, break bread and give thanks, confessing your sins so that your sacrifice might be pure. But, you might be thinking, how do we give thanks? What words should we say? The Didache's got you covered. Unless you're a prophet, we'll get to that later, the Didache gives you a scripted prayer to read when your church gathering performs the Eucharist. And very interestingly, the Eucharist doesn't mention the Jesus' death, cross, burial, resurrection, atonement, or satisfaction even once. There's no reference to the Last Supper, the words of institution, or Paul's instructions on the Eucharist either. So what does it say? I'll read it to you, starting in chapter 9, verse 1. Now, concerning the Eucharist, give thanks in this way. First, concerning the cup. We give thanks to you, our Father, for the holy vine of David your servant, which you have made known to us through Jesus your servant. To you be the glory forever. And concerning the broken bread. We give thanks to you, our Father, for the life and knowledge that you have made known to us through Jesus your servant. To you be the glory forever. Just as this broken bread was scattered upon the mountains and then was gathered and made into one, Thus let your church be gathered from the ends of the earth into your kingdom, for yours is the glory and power through Jesus Christ forever. Not exactly the elements of a Eucharist prayer you or I might pray, right? Well, it seems that what seemed really important to the early Christians about the Eucharist was emphasizing the salvation historical element of the gospel, the revelatory nature of the incarnation, and the eschatological hope of the church. I'll comment on each briefly. First, the prayer over the wine gives the Hebrew Bible's narrative of salvation the pride of place. Jesus' lineage was not to the early church from just some randomly selected nation. The Nazi-sympathizing theologians used to argue that Jesus' Jewishness was inessential to his message, and therefore the gospel should abandon the, quote, trappings of Judaism. But the early church disagrees. The earliest church saw Christ as the fulfillment of a centuries-old narrative, reaching back especially to David, Abraham, and Adam. Modern biblical scholarship tends to agree with the early church on this one, and the quote, new perspective on Paul, is reimagining what the gospel looks like when integrally tied to its Old Testament foundations. And, standing there ahead of us in this way as others, the early church theologians must be happy that we finally caught up to them. Second, the prayer over the bread highlights the revelatory nature of Jesus' incarnation. We dealt with this earlier, talking about apostolicity and authority and whatnot, but here again we're reminded that not only life, but also the knowledge of God was made known to the world in and through Jesus. Jesus is, so to speak, 
the communication point between the divine and human realms. Every time early Christians took communion, presumably once per week on Sundays, they were reminded of this fact. In a world which cared deeply about religious and spiritual matters, in which divination and magic flourished, the earliest Christians must have been comforted by this secure ground of communication. And third, you'll notice that the prayer has a decidedly eschatological bent. It concludes with a prayer that, just as wheat is gathered from many mountains to make a single loaf of bread, so too might the church be gathered from many nations to one eternal kingdom of God. Tyler's about to talk about eschatology more, I guess because he's into that or whatever, but it's enough for me here to point out that the Eucharist was, for the early Christians, a decidedly forward-looking movement. Uh, the Eucharist was not just a time to remember the past events of Jesus' death, which are never mentioned in the prayers, nor to be grateful for one's own spiritual well-being brought about by it, also not mentioned in the prayers, but was primarily a time when Christians looked forward to the hope of a new life in a newly resurrected world. And because I can't help it, I'll point out that Jonathan Edwards, Calvinist theologian extraordinaire and a personal hero of mine, Ugh. was right about the Eucharist, if we're taking the Didache's word for it, at least. Chapter 9, verse 5 reads, But let no one eat or drink from your Eucharist, except those who have been baptized into the name of the Lord. For the Lord has also spoken concerning this, saying, Do not give what is holy to dogs. Edwards took a lot of flack from his church for insisting on closed communion, that only genuine baptized Christians should partake of the Eucharist, and that pissed a ton of people off. Why would the church care if outsiders took communion, though? And why would they call them dogs? Well, that was a traditional slur that Jews used against Gentiles. It had strong elements of uncleanness to it, hence the problem of letting them into the, quote, sacrifice, as the Didache calls the Eucharist. That's why the early church practiced a closed communion, though perhaps not why we might today. Besides, in that culture, people were a lot less civil than we are today. I think we're right to be more kind, open, and thoughtful in our words, but apparently they didn't care as much. But why don't you think that kind of exclusivity has the potential of pushing people away from Christianity? I mean, shouldn't we be more inclusive and welcoming? Yeah, definitely, but we need to make sure we're doing so in a wise way. While inclusivity might be generally a good thing, it's dangerous to assume to, that it would always be good, regardless of the context and the issues at hand. So, for instance, we Christians all agree that baptism is a closed sort of sacrament, or ordinance or whatever. We present that to the world as something only Christians do, and we do so for metaphorical reasons, which would be undone if everyone could come and try out baptism. The same, I assume, is the case with traditionally exclusive Muslim or Hindu rituals. If I were at a prayer service at a mosque, I wouldn't be offended if I was politely asked not to do, I don't know, whatever Muslims do exclusively. In the same way, we Christians have our own exclusive symbols with metaphorical value. But if the Eucharist is an eschatological symbol of the wedding feast between Christ and his bride, the church, then what's the problem with letting outsiders get a taste, literally and metaphorically, of what's to come? I mean, we consider the Eucharist to be a shadow of the reality that's to come, so why not let an atheist or a Muslim or whoever participate? And through participating, they might desire to experience the reality to which the Eucharist points. Well, yeah, I guess you could make that case. But I'd be hesitant to make the Eucharist a missional thing. 
I'm all about trying to get people to worship Jesus, but as Ecclesiastes says, there's a time for everything, and the wise person knows the proper time and procedure. The Eucharist wasn't intended to be an evangelism tool, but a ritual that binds Christians together as one community and orients them towards the hope that they have. One of the unexpected drawbacks of turning the Eucharist into an evangelism tool is that it blurs the line between Christian and non-Christian. It undoes the symbolism of the one body in Christ that the Eucharist is meant to highlight, and it tells people that they will be saved when Christ comes when, in reality, they won't, pending any life changes, of course. Besides, going back to the idol feud discussion above, Paul considered the Eucharist a participation in and a communion with Christ. By letting unbelievers take the Eucharist, we're also undoing that symbolism, since they don't have the participation in and communion with Christ that the Eucharist symbolizes. It'd be like wearing a wedding ring when you're not married. Also, the whole thing is about symbolism. The Eucharist symbolizes Christ's salvific presence in those who have believed, and if anyone and everyone takes the Eucharist, it completely changes the symbolism and says instead that everyone intrinsically has Christ's salvific presence, which is something that Christianity has never taught. The Holy Spirit's life-giving energy, which is the breath in all beings' lungs, sure, but not Christ's salvific presence. But to finish this out, Tyler, you want to teach us something about eschatology for a bit? Of course. Perhaps one of the most important questions we can ask from a text like this is, what is the function of the church? Why do we meet together like this on the Lord's Day? If the Didache is a beginner's guide for how to live as a Christian and how to become a part of the body of Christ, we should expect at least some sort of hint at an answer. And everything in this manual for Christian life comes to a climax in the final chapter, which deals with eschatology. That's right, the end times. So it turns out that in the first century, someone figured out that the Antichrist would show up in over 2,000 years. So he sent a letter to the future in coded language so that only a 21st century American would have the ability to crack the code. So for the past 2,000 years, nobody has had any idea what that message is about until now. That's right, the Antichrist is Barack Obama. Wait, no, I read that wrong. I mean, it's Hillary Clinton. Look, eschatology and apocalyptic literature in particular are notoriously difficult to interpret and even to define. So people invent crazy interpretations, usually in an attempt to demonize the politicians they don't like or to justify their actions such as the slaughter of Native Americans, or the support of Israeli war crimes against Palestinians. Americans are particularly bad at this, largely due to the eschatology of 17th century Puritans and the publication of the Schofield Reference Bible in 1909. These completely misinterpreted the eschatology of the New Testament and created a tradition that gave birth to the Zionism of John Hagee and Left Behind and the modern idea of the rapture. To be fair, they aren't the first to map out the end of the world and to create timelines. And, credit where credit is due, Left Behind did offer us yet another stunning Nicolas Cage performance. And I think we can all agree that if there's anything this world needs, it's more Nicolas Cage. But Americans are unique in the way they obsess over the end of the world and the identity of the Antichrist. People have been trying to figure out the identity of the Antichrist for literally thousands of years. 
For example, Hippolytus of Rome calculated the end of the world to occur in the year 500 CE, and that the Antichrist would be a Jew from the tribe of Dan. But when you study apocalyptic literature, it becomes clear that each apocalyptic text simply recycles this idea of the big bad wolf and applies it to whoever is currently in power or whoever is oppressing. So for Daniel, it was Antiochus IV Epiphanes who viciously persecuted the Jews and desecrated their temple. For the author of Revelation, it was the Emperor Domitian. For George Lucas, it was Emperor Palpatine. And since apocalypticism and eschatology are so weird and difficult, most people either avoid it altogether, or even worse, they use modern newspapers rather than historical context as a guide for interpretation. The Greek word apocalypsis simply means revelation or a revealing. It has nothing to do with nuclear holocaust or the destruction of the planet, and it definitely has nothing to do with 21st century global politics. Apocalyptic literature is really just a genre of stories about heavenly beings revealing stuff to humans. Not all of them dealt with the end times, but most did. Apocalypticism, such as what we find in the Didache, is a worldview within a social movement that structures itself around the final judgment and redemption, the reversal of the social order where the last are first and the first are last. Now, apocalyptic and eschatological literature is my personal favorite genre, and I've done a decent amount of research on it, and I intend to write a dissertation about it in the future. So in my completely unbiased and objective determination, it is a fact that Christian literature is at its best when it's apocalyptic. Right, Gerhard? I mean, all I'm saying is that the early church didn't think so, and tended to be pretty hesitant to accept Revelation as canon. It is really weird after all. Typical Calvinistic low view of scripture. Hey, at least we read our scriptures. I read Edwards every morning and evening. Morning and evening. Spurgeon too, apparently. Except not really. Eschatology played a central role in the life of the early church. Their emphasis on the final judgment and the events leading up to it accomplished a few goals fundamental to the life of the church, and before them, to the Jews who invented apocalyptic literature. First, it challenged the church not to assimilate into the world, specifically to avoid the corruption of the rich and greedy who preyed on the weak. It called them to persevere in the faith, no matter how hard it gets. Second, it provided hope in a world that seems to have none. Things will be made right, and your faithfulness will make it right. Third, it tried to scare the hell out of people with power and to tell them that they're going to get their comeuppance if they don't stop praying on the weak. This third aspect is not so prominent in the Didache simply because of the nature of its text. It's training for young Padawans rather than condemning the empire like Daniel or Revelation. But after giving an introduction to the church's ethics and the structure of its life, Didache 16, 1 and 2 says, quote, Be prepared, for you do not know the hour in which the Lord is coming. Frequently be gathered together, seeking the things pertaining to your souls. For the whole time of your faith will not be of use to you if in the end of time you should not have been perfected." Unquote. And then it goes into a description of the apostasy and the Antichrist, who it calls the world deceiver. It talks about the time of testing, during which it will be made evident whether or not people are truly Christians. 
And in the final statement of the Didache, it simply says, quote, Then the world will see the Lord coming atop the clouds of heaven. End quote. Now, most scholars think that the text is actually cut short and that we're missing the end of it. But this shows that the church exists for the specific purpose of preparing for Christ's return. That doesn't mean that we stock up on canned goods and assault rifles. It means that we learn to follow the way of life, which is the way of peace and justice and hope through radical love and self-giving. The church is explicitly eschatological. Throughout the New Testament and within our Eucharist is the hope that those who are persecuted will be comforted, that those who have been taken advantage of will be restored, that persecutors and those who take advantage of the weak will be brought to justice. It's not a hope that sits by and simply expects things to get better, but a hope that inspires us to make them better now. The Christian communities of the first few centuries often faced persecution or even hostility from their own families. The Didache opens with the commandment to abstain from violence in response to violence. And scholar Aaron Milovec suggests that the author wrote this for new converts to learn how to deal with the fact that their friends and relatives would turn against them. It was even likely that the family patriarch might seize a new Christian's possessions. So rather than fight, new Christians surrendered their rights and surrendered earthly materials. They endured difficulty and sometimes even persecution for the sake of the gospel and for the hope of bringing heaven to earth. I don't think we can overestimate the importance of eschatology for the church, but we can misunderstand it, and we have misunderstood it, often to the detriment of the church's ability to orient itself towards that hope. If you want to better understand eschatology and its importance for the church, we'll put up some resources on our blog so you can do some more digging for yourself. The end of the world seems like an appropriate place to end this podcast. You agree, Tyler? Yeah, sounds good. Keep an eye out for our next episode. Next time, we'll introduce you to one of the most famous, or infamous, church fathers, St. Origen of Alexandria. Well, technically he wasn't a saint since he was condemned as a heretic. Well, but we're Protestants, so we believe all Christians are saints. Whoever he was, he was the first Gentile church father to learn the Hebrew language. He created a way to interpret scripture that dominated Christian exegesis for the next millennium and a half. And he castrated himself with a brick. Wait, wait, what? What? He castrated himself with a brick? I didn't say that. Eusebius didn't say that either. Well, the internet did. Well, now that you have a church manual to pester your elder board about implementing, we'll let you go for now. Be sure to check out our website, podcasticapatristica.com, where we always upload resources for further reading on the day's text or issue. You'll also find a contact form on the website that you can use to send us questions or make suggestions for future episodes. In the words of Barnabas, Farewell, children of love and peace. May the Lord of glory and all grace be with your spirit. Amen. Amen.